excuse me, John chapter 7. We already covered John chapter 6. We won't do it again. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 36 will be our text for this morning. As we've been going through the book of John, our first message, in our first message we laid out what the purpose of the book of John was for. Why John wrote the book. Uh, to give, of course, a survey of the life of Jesus to show who he was, but ultimately, at the end, John says, here's why I've written about all these miracles, here's why I've written everything about what Jesus has done, so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you might have life in His name. This is why John wrote the book. And so we're getting different glimpses of Jesus and His teaching and His miracles. We've seen at the beginning where uh, John the Baptist stood up and said, I'm a prophet, I'm speaking for God, repent, turn away, the kingdom of God is at hand. But there's one coming after me, He's the one that you need to look for. I'm not worthy to tie the strap of His sandal. And Jesus comes on the scene and John says, Behold, or look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is a summary of Jesus' coming. Why He came to take away the sins of the world. We see Jesus' first miracle at the wedding at Cana where He turns the water into wine. Kind of a, a, a beginning sign of what He as the Messiah would do. He would be, bring joy instead of shame. We saw some of His other Healings. We saw him cleaning out the temple, and he proclaimed basically, "I am the temple." You, you're, you're making this a mockery of what it stands for. It points to me ultimately. Jesus gives hints uh, all throughout these first six chapters of his death. Um, he says, "My hour has not yet come." He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He speaks about his death. He's giving hints about why he has come. He has come to die as a sacrifice for sinners. And last week we saw even more references to his death. Remember he started saying what we might think of as weird things. He said, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him first. And he said, if anybody wants to be my disciple, he must uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's speaking there of his death as well. And as a result of these sayings of Jesus, some of his disciples turn away. They start walking away from him. They were they loved uh, when he turned uh, when he made food for five thousand men, but they didn't like these words that he was saying. He was saying he did not like. They did not like these difficult sayings of Jesus, and so they start turning away. So this presents one problem from our last passage, the problem that some of his own disciples are turning away from him. But in our text today, we see an even bigger problem, which is there's this growing division so large in that the Jews have now turned to want to kill him. You see, he has a problem that followers are leaving, but he has a bigger problem, that they want to end his life. So look with me at the first 36 verses, chapter 7. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. 
But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one wants to become a, who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival. Because the time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? Among the crowds... There was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who speaks, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At this point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded he is the Messiah? But we know where this man's from. When Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time and then I am going to the one who sent me. You'll look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Let us pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to this text, we pray that you would... Speak to us by it. You would use it to 
teach us the truth about who Jesus is and about who we are. That you would use it to penetrate our hearts so that we would turn away from our sins and so that we would turn to Christ our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. So Jesus is facing a bigger problem than just decreasing disciples. The Jews want to kill him. There's this growing divide between those who love Jesus and trust him and those who hate him. Like if you were standing on in where there's a crack of an earthquake, it's growing further and further. You need to choose sides. Which side will you be on? And the Jews seek desperately to kill him. Now Jesus, I think, sums up what this divide is all about in verses 6 through 8. He's speaking to his brothers. They tell him that he needs to go show himself to his disciples. He needs to perform some sign so that he'll prove himself to his disciples. And Jesus, of course, is not going to be on their timetable. My time is not here yet. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to do them on my own timetable, not yours. And so Jesus goes up uh, privately. But before he does, he speaks to them. He, he says, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you. But look at this, the key passage about this growing divide. But it hates me. The world hates me. Because I testify that its works are evil. I think the, the, a summary sentence for this passage would be this. The world hates Jesus. And will do whatever it takes to silence Him. The world hates Jesus and will do whatever it takes to silence Him. Now, underneath this statement, underneath the world's hatred of Jesus, of course you know something deeper, right? There's one whose hatred of Jesus is unparalleled. Satan hates God. Satan hates Jesus. And so he is working to draw people away from Jesus, to blind people's eyes so that they will not trust in Jesus. The world hates Jesus and will do whatever it takes to silence him. Persecution. Uh, here we see the Jews are seeking to kill him, seeking to arrest him. Uh, they seek to discredit him by saying, well, we know where he's from. He's, right down, he's from right down the road in Nazareth. We don't have to believe him. He's not from God. Messiah, we won't know where He comes from. We know this man. You see, it's okay if Jesus is simply a good teacher. If He says good moral things, you know, about how we should live, about how we should treat each other. If He's just a good teacher, a good prophet, everything's fine. But don't say that He is God. Don't say that He is God in human flesh. And don't say that He died for sinners. Don't say that He is God because then He will take away our own authority. See, that's, that's, the, that's the big deal here. That's what the Jews fear. That's what the people don't like. That if Jesus is who He says He is, if He is God in human flesh, then what He says goes. And they want to make the rules instead. They want to live by their own authority. They want to do what they want to do, not what Jesus tells them to do. But we, we get even more, we get some reasons here. Throughout these dialogues with Jesus and the people, Jesus and the Jews, we, we find out more about why it is that the world hates Jesus. Why does the world so desperately hate Jesus? And by the world, I don't mean everybody, I mean just who we are by human nature. 
Right? We all enter into the world as sinners. As those who are tainted with sin. And by nature, we are a part of the world. That's what we mean by worldliness. Against, set over and against God and the things of God. Why does the world hate Jesus so much? First, we see in verse 7 that the world hates Jesus because he testifies that its works are evil. Has anybody ever come to you, to your face, and said, uh, and pointed out that your works were evil? How would you react to that? Would you like that person? We don't like it when we're driving down the road and somebody beeps a horn at us and tells us we're doing something we shouldn't have done. We made a wrong turn or we didn't go when the uh, light turned green. We, we take offense at that. How much more offense will we, would we take if someone came directly face to face to us and said, your works are evil. This is what Jesus says. This is why the world hates me. Because I testify that its works are evil. This is why Jesus came. He is the light of the world. And so Jesus comes into the world, the light in the midst of a dark world, and shines the spotlight on all the evil and all the corruption of our own hearts. And we hate it by nature. We don't like that. We don't like being exposed for who we really are. But Jesus did not come to condemn also. You remember that from Jesus' earlier teaching? He did not come to condemn. However, we must have a diagnosis before we can get a cure. Right? We must have our hearts diagnosed before we can be made whole again. We need someone to tell us and point out what is wrong with us so that we can be made right. And so this is what Jesus is doing when He testifies that the world's works are evil. He's, point, he's giving a diagnosis. He's showing us what's wrong in order that we might come to Him for healing. Not so that we would hate Him, so that we would come to Him for healing. But this is why the world hates Jesus. He testifies that its works are evil. The world hates Jesus also because Humans, we by nature don't wish to do God's will. We don't want to do God's will. Now this is why the people here in this text don't recognize his teaching. Look at verses 14 to 19. They complain about his teaching. They ask, how did this man who has not had any training, how did he get this teaching? How is he teaching like this? Now they didn't mean that he didn't, he, he wasn't, didn't go through school when he was young. He didn't learn his letters. things. Like, they mean he had been through no formal, we could say, seminary training. He had been with no master who had taught him about the Scriptures. And yet here he was in the temple teaching, astounding everybody that heard him. Where did his teaching come from? And he, he tells them where it came from. It came from God. It's not my own. I'm not teaching on my own authority. I'm simply speaking for the one who sent me. And look at verse 17. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God, anyone who desires, anyone whose will it is to do the will of God, will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. What he's saying here is the reason they don't recognize his teaching is because they do not desire to do the will of God. They desire to do their own will. See, their problem was not primarily intellectual, but moral. 
Their problem was not primarily in their minds, but it was a moral failure. They were choosing not to do God's will. And by nature, that's our our case as well. For anyone who does not trust in God, for anyone who does not see the teaching of Jesus and recognize it from God, their problem is not primarily intellectual. It's not that they don't have enough information. Their problem is primarily moral. And we find this in ourselves too. You might say, uh, and I've I've probably said it myself before, I I just wish God would tell me what to do. I just wish I, He would tell me His will and then I would go do it. Do you think that's the way it would work? Paul in Romans 7 says, the very thing I know to do, the very thing I want to do, I can't bring myself to do it. The thing that I hate to do, it's the very thing I find myself doing. His problem was not primarily intellectual. Not knowing the will of God, it's a moral problem. Right? We are sinners. Even after we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, We are simultaneously sinner and saint. We are perfectly accepted in God's sight. Not because of our own work, but because of the work of Christ for us. And yet we have this indwelling sin. We are simultaneously sinner and saint. Fully accepted in God's sight. And yet still struggle to follow His will. Now He points out to them, Again, that their problem is moral in the last part of that conversation. Look at verse 19. He, Jesus is saying, I am the one who is true. I, what I'm speaking is true. You don't recognize it because you do not do God's will. You don't desire to do God's will. And he points to the one they would have respected, the one they would have admired, Moses. Has not Moses given you the law? You know what it is to do God's will. Has not God, has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. And he points out a specific way that they are breaking the law. Why are you seeking to kill me? Why are you seeking to to murder me, an innocent man? You know the law. You know what God says. Your own, uh, the one you look up to has given the law. And yet you're breaking it by trying to kill me. Their problem was moral. And because of that, because they didn't desire God's will, they hated Jesus because they knew He was from the Father. They knew His righteousness, His perfection. But in verses 21 to 24, we see another reason why the world hates Jesus. It's because in this instance, they loved their traditions more than they did people. They loved their traditions more than they loved people. So Jesus is referring back to the miracle that he did at the pool at Bethesda, where he healed the lame man on the Sabbath day. He said to the man uh, who hadn't uh, walked in a long time, pick up your mat and go on your way. He did it on the Sabbath day. The the Jews saw this. They got upset first at the man who picked up his mat and walked because they said, you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. You can't pick up your mat and start walking with it. You're breaking the rules. And he deferred to Jesus and said, well, the one who healed me told me, pick up your mat and go. And they were more interested in the fact that he had picked up his mat and walked than the fact that Jesus healed a man completely of his lameness. They loved their traditions more than they loved the people. Jesus says, you you circumcise a young boy on the Sabbath day. If he's born a week earlier, uh, then you, sacri- you uh, 
circumcising. See, there was a case where there were two uh, laws that seemed to conflict. Circumcision should be done on the eighth day. Sabbath day should be observed. Normally you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath day. What do you do? And the Jews had concluded, well, uh, let's make sure that the boys are sacrificed, circumcised on the eighth day. So they, uh, they noticed that there was a conflict and they knew they had to choose one law over another. And Jesus is saying here, if you can do that, why are you mad at me for healing someone on the Sabbath day? For making someone completely whole? It doesn't make sense. It's because you value and love your traditions more than you love people. And laws were made for people. Right? Weren't laws made so that we would treat one another with respect and love? The law is summarized in this. Love God with everything that you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law is. And yet, the Jews here were setting up their traditions of the law over and above the people. So they hated Jesus. Jesus says mercy comes first. Mercy to people comes first, not your own traditions. And finally, the people hate Jesus because they don't know God. They just don't know Him. By nature, none of us know God. Verses 25 to 29. People recognize that this is the one that they're trying to kill. They're not saying a word to. They think maybe the authorities have concluded this is the Messiah, but it couldn't be. It couldn't be the Messiah because we know where he's from. There was an idea they would, that when the Messiah came, no one would know where he would come from. No one would know because he would be so much higher and above everyone else. But Jesus says, yeah, you know where I am from. But you don't really. That's what he's saying. You know where I'm from, but not really. Because you think I'm just from a place in this geographic area. I'm not here on my own authority. But he who sent me is true. And look what he says. You do not know him. This is why you hate me. You do not know him. But I know him because I am from him. And he sent me. Now notice in each of these cases, Jesus is contrasted with those who hate him. He testifies that their works are evil. His works are always and perfectly good. They hate Jesus because they don't desire to do God's will. Everything Jesus was about was doing His Father's will. That was His, his motivating, that was His captivating motivation. He wanted to please the Lord in everything that He did. They hated Him because they loved their traditions more than they loved people. But Jesus loved people and he loved the law of God and they don't know God but Jesus has known him from all eternity you don't know God this would be all of these things would be terribly offensive they thought they knew the law better than anybody else they thought they knew God this is the one thing that they had their righteousness their knowledge of the scriptures and of God and so they try to seize him they try to seize him. They, they try to, they're trying to kill him. They send these out to arrest him. Now it's easy to see all of these things in other people. It's easy to see that our world hates Jesus. As long as he's a, a good teacher, a good man, 
And most people are okay with Him. But if you begin talking about Him being God or having authority over everyone's life or being the only way to salvation, then people begin to get angry. It's easy to see also these sins in other people. That others' works are evil. That others don't wish to do God's will. That they love their traditions. That they love their own way more than they love people that they don't know God. What we should also consider in this. Don't you see yourself in some of those? Don't you see those very same sins in your own heart? If, Je- if Jesus came and testified about your works throughout your life, from the very beginning, would He testify that your works are evil? Would He, t- would he be able to say, your works measure up to God's law? You see these Ten Commandments? You see my summary of the law? Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. How would Jesus testify about your works. Or the second part of his summary. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those who are difficult to love. Those who wronged you or treat you badly. Would Jesus testify of your works? Those measure up. If you're like me, Jesus would testify of my works. Those are evil works. Not only have you done the wrong things, You've had the wrong motives in doing the right things. You've attempted to do things for your own glory, for your, for your own standing, so that you could be here and look down on other people who haven't done as good as you have done. Can you say of your motives that it's always your desire to do the will of God? Isn't it true that we often love our traditions more than we love people? That we love keeping the rules more than we love people? And when you do this, when you love your own tradition, when you love your rules more than you love people, it shows that you actually think you've kept the rules. Because only then are you able to look down on others. Only then are you able to not show mercy to people. You see, the, the truth of the matter is that by nature, all of us hate God and the things of God. By nature, we hate Jesus because He shines the spotlight on our sins and tells us to turn away from them. He testifies that our works are evil. And so, like the Jews, we try to silence Jesus. Every time, every time you are being tempted to sin and the Spirit convicts you, don't do that. Don't gossip about that person. Don't respond in anger at that person. Don't we try to silence that voice of the Spirit? Because we don't like it. By nature we want to do and do, do our own thing. Go our own way. The very things that these people are guilty of, we are guilty of too. So they try to seize Him. They try to kill Him. They try to arrest Him. But Jesus says, you know, 
I'm going to one day go to a place you can't seize me anymore. He escapes them here because his time is not yet. He says, I'm going to go to a place where you won't be able to find me. You can't, you won't be able to get me. And ultimately, of course, he's talking about his ascension to the Father. His death, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father. But we all know that eventually the Jews did get him. The Jews did seize him. We're coming up on Easter. It's fast approaching. The Jews did seize Jesus. They did arrest him through the betrayal of his own disciple. They beat him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They did get him. And they executed him. They raised him up on a cross and nailed his hands and his feet to those pieces of wood. They succeed, in fact, in the very thing they were aiming to do, silencing Jesus. They succeed in silencing Jesus on the cross. He breathes his last and he dies. But it only appeared that they succeeded. They thought they succeeded, but it only appeared that way. Hebrews twelve twenty four says that the blood of Jesus speaks. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the sacrifice of Abel. We know that by faith, Abel offered a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. He was murdered and through faith, though he died, yet he still speaks. Abel's sacrifice pointed ultimately to the sacrifice of Christ. Pointed to the true sacrifice. Abel's sacrifices of of lambs or goats was only temporary. All the sacrifices throughout the Old Testament couldn't actually do any forgiving anyway. They pointed ultimately to the, the one true Lamb of God who alone could forgive sin, who alone could atone for sin, who alone could take away the sins of the world. And His blood speaks. It still speaks. Not only did His blood speak the forgiveness of sins over all those who come to Him in faith, He rose again from the dead and ascended to the Father. He died for every sin that you and I have ever committed. He died for your evil works. He died because of your impure desire to do your own will rather than God's will. He died for all those times you passed over those in need because of your own traditions or your own desires or your own will. He died for every time you tried to silence Jesus. He died for sinners. If we silence Jesus, if we try to silence Jesus, we silence the only one who can make us well. You see, the only way that we can come to the point where we receive forgiveness is if we allow Jesus to speak and tell us about our evil works. It's like silencing Jesus when He speaks about our evil works would be like trying to silence the doctor when He's trying to tell you what's wrong with you. Right? We, how many of you have ever been to WebMD or what's another one of those? You try to diagnose yourself. Right? The doctor tells you one thing and you say, I don't believe what he says. I'm going to go find out for real what my problem is. And we do that spiritually. We try to diagnose ourselves. Jesus stands here and says, your works are evil. 
And we say, it's not that bad. There must be, there's something else wrong with me. I need, I need to do this. I need to do 40 days of fasting. I need to do this so that I can get closer to God. I need these steps in order to overcome all these bad habits in my life. And we try to diagnose ourselves. And Jesus says, no, it's worse than you thought. Your works are evil. And the only, the only cure, the only thing that will save you is not by doing better or trying harder or trying to get better. The only cure is me. The only cure is death. And I died for you. He died to make us well. He died to raise us to life. And He stands for any and all who will come to Him. He says, come to Me. I'm the one who will heal you. I am the one who will save you. I am the one who will draw you up into the heavenly places where I am too. So go to Him. Don't try to diagnose yourself. Go to Him. Hear what He says. Receive Him. Don't silence Him. Listen to Him. See the ugliness of your sin and turn again to the Savior who loves you. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we come together as we have confessed our sins. We pray that you would continue to convict us of areas where we have tried to hold on to our own authority. Areas where we have tried to hold on to living life the way we want to live it. And we ask you to speak. Convict us. Because we want to understand all the areas where we have failed. Not so that we can wallow in our shame. Not so we can wallow in how bad we are, but so that we can get to the cure. Show us more each day how you heal every one of our brokenness. Show us more each day how you make us whole again by the blood that you spilled on Calvary. Draw us to yourself so that we would be made whole. Just like the lame man was made completely whole, we want to be made whole. Convict us of sin of where we have treated our brothers and sisters wrongly. Where we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Convict us so that we can be made right and so that we can make it right. We pray that you would do this for us, in Jesus' name.